Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongues plot destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome or welcome back to uh, Nehemiah, week number three. Today we will see more opposition to the work of God on the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we will see those walls finished. We will see the beginning of what would be called everyday life in the city of Jerusalem. And we will go back and I will fill in the blanks that I started last week uh, with uh, Rabshakeh and Sennacherib. So, but first a quick review for, for those who may not have been here. Uh, of the first five chapters of Nehemiah, where we've been the last two weeks, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah learns of the situation in Jerusalem through a visit from Hananiah, his brother. And, and all of this uh, happens in just an everyday conversation. It wasn't necessarily that Hananiah had come specifically to give this report or that Nehemiah had beckoned him. Uh, it just came about in, in everyday conversation. Um, that, this, that he becomes aware of this. And Nehemiah spends four months praying and planning. Uh, and then in Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, asks for permission from King Artaxerxes to return to Jerusalem to build the walls. Um, in chapter 2, verse 8, Nehemiah says that it was the good hand of my God that made this so for him to return. And before he even actually gets to Jerusalem, he's actually just passing through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem, he encounters opposition from Sanballat before he's even in the city, just that someone would come and would, would seek the welfare of the people of God. Uh, there's already opposition. Nehemiah chapter 3 then gives a detailed uh, recounting of the building of the wall. About 40 sections of the wall are described, uh, two miles around, uh, people involved all the way from just very common folks that we only know by name to local uh, provincial rulers, all the way to the high priest and, the, uh, and several other priests working side by side, as it were, on the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we encounter external opposition more strongly. 
Um, and uh, we read of the steps that Nehemiah put in place, armed guards, um, armed workers, to be ready uh, at, at all times. In fact, at that point, then the workers, rather than going back out of the city overnight, stayed in the city overnight to keep themselves safe, to keep one another safe, um, and to move forward with the work. And in chapter 5, we move from external opposition to internal oppression where, where Nehemiah takes up the cause of the poor in and around Jerusalem who by their very own uh, kin had been oppressed, uh, where money had been lent at interest, where their children had gone into debt slavery, they had mortgaged their fields uh, to their brothers uh, in order to just have enough money to buy food. And Nehemiah um, rebukes them and calls them, uh, calls them out against this, doing the very thing that God had called them to not do, that God had called Israel to redeem the brother who's in slavery, uh, who, who is in debt, to help the brother who, who can't sustain himself, and, and they were doing just the opposite. So that brings us to chapter 6. And uh, you can see in your notes uh, that uh, in, in this chapter, the opposition continues um, against the building of the wall against Nehemiah himself. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So <clears throat> one of the first things that we see here uh, is uh, all the way along, the scope of the enemies of God's people continue to grow, at least in their description and probably in reality. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, as I'd mentioned in our review, it is only Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant who are mentioned. Then in chapter 2, verse 19, we suddenly now have Geshem the Arab added to that group. Um, in chapter 4, verse 2, we have Sanballat in the presence of the people of Samaria and the army of Samaria, um, despising the Jews. Then in verse 7 of chapter 4, uh, the, the list grows. We have Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, of, of whom Geshem is one, um, and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. Um, so now, now we have, uh, geographically, uh, enemies of, of Jerusalem all the way around in all, in all directions. Um, and uh, Nehemiah or whoever, or Ezra, whoever wrote 
this now um, has given up trying to enumerate everyone in chapter 6. So it is Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest of our enemies. Uh, just a whole bunch more. Um, so so the, the opposition is growing. And uh, what has also changed is that the previous efforts were to intimidate the workers, to, to ridicule, to dishearten them, to, to get them to put down their tools, to walk away in fear. And now the attention has turned directly on Nehemiah. Right? If, I, if I can't stop the effort, I will take out the leader. That's what I will do, as the enemies say to themselves. And so the, uh, the call comes, come, meet us. Just, just come on out to this place where we don't exactly know where it is, but it's several miles, maybe 25 or 30 miles outside of Jerusalem. Come on out, let's talk. Um, and uh, Nehemiah quickly knows in verse 2 that they intended to do him harm, whether to take him prisoner, hostage, or, or even uh, to kill him. Uh, again, in hopes of stopping the work uh, altogether. And uh, this would be a time now, since, since uh, I had mentioned earlier the, uh, the opposition in chapter 4 of, of Sanballat deriding the Jews in, in the presence of, of, of the, the workers themselves to... Uh, finish the apology from last week of having started talking about Rabshakeh and to give you the rest of that very quickly. Um, so th there's a parallel here from actually from 2 Kings 18 and 19. We won't take the time to read any of it, but, but this was during the Assyrian reign of Sennacherib. This is several dozens of years before. Um, and Hezekiah was king in Judah at that time. And Sennacherib had come to the area of Judah and, and was besieging and conquering cities, and he came to, sent uh, this guy, Rabshakeh, along with a huge army, to Jerusalem to besiege the city. And Rabshakeh met with the officials of Jerusalem at the wall and was telling them all of the horrors that were going to befall Jerusalem if they didn't uh, just open the gates and let the army in. The problem was he was speaking in the, just the, the everyday common tongue of Hebrew, and the, the, the officials in Jerusalem said, listen, speak to us in Aramaic so that the everyday man cannot understand this. We can negotiate and we can talk about this. And Rabshakeh refused to do that. And his goal was the same goal as Sanballat's, was to dishearten the, the everyday person in Jerusalem. Um, the rest of that story... Uh, is, is 2 Kings 19 with Hezekiah's prayer, uh, Isaiah's prophecy, and the angel of the Lord uh, destroying an army of 185,000 uh, without, without Jerusalem even lifting a finger. In fact, uh, 2 Kings 19.35 says that, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Um, that, is, that is almost right there with hailstones chasing people 20 miles. 
from Joshua last week of, of God uh, on, on behalf of his people. So just an, an example of, of uh, God uh, working on behalf of his people, but as well the parallels of how the enemies of God, God's people work. Um, so back to, to Nehemiah 6. We, we don't understand the, the reason for this invitation just yet. Um, Nehemiah rejects it out of hand um, in verse 3, making clear that, that he understands at least part of their motive when he says, why should the work stop while I leave? They... Uh, they sent the same message four times, so that's desperate. Uh, Nehemiah gives the same answer four times. Nehemiah is a man of few words. He's direct. I like Nehemiah a lot. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, beat around the bush with his responses. So we move on to verses 5 to 7, and we learn more about this. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his service servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king, Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports. So now come. Let us take counsel together. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a thinly veiled threat, right? Hey, listen, this is, this is just what we're hearing. That you're going to set up the walls. You're going to become this rebellious city. I don't think Artaxerxes is going to like this. You know, you declare yourself king. Um, let's talk about that. Come on, come on out. Come on out to the Valley of Ono. Um, and let's talk about that. Uh, because... I don't think Artaxerxes is going to be happy at all with this. It's really just an, an uh, expansion of the accusations already made in, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2. And interestingly enough, uh, there's, there's really an honest fear that could come about from this. Go back to the left with me to Ezra chapter 4. Because this very same thing had worked itself out some years before. We, we don't exactly know when. Um, our attention will start in verse 7. But let me give, just give you the big, the big high points. That, that there was an attempt. Ezra is about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah about rebuilding the walls of the city. But in Ezra is recorded an attempt to rebuild the walls of the city as well. During the reign of Artaxerxes. Our same king in Nehemiah. Verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabael and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Down to verse 12 now. This is what they wrote. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls, repairing the foundations. Now, let it, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Verse 19. This is the response now from the king. 
and I made a decree. Search has been made, and it's been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. Verse 21, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Verse 23, then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rim and Shimshay, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. So Sanballat is, is working this same angle that he believes that, that he can bring fear into Nehemiah's heart and stop the work by threat of, hey, listen, you remember what happened 20, 30, 40 years ago? We, we, well, it's less than 20 because we know this is in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So 15 years ago, you remember what happened? You don't want that to happen again. Remember, you know, stop, stopping the, the wall work by force and by power, I think, is a euphemism for bloodshed. Uh, and, and so Nehemiah wouldn't want to have that on his hands. But, again, our friend Nehemiah is, uh, has his economy of words. Verse 8, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And we see again, as we've seen before, that this, this is, I think, a great example of praying without ceasing. Right? Nehemiah is, is going through the narrative, speaking about uh, what was happening. And right in the midst of it, just, just right in, in between that, comes this prayer from Nehemiah's heart. Strengthen my hands. Um, and it's, a, uh, it's an amazing thing to see, and, and I think a great model for us uh, as we consider how to think about just an everyday conversation or life, or, or in this case, uh, facing opposition. Um, Nehemiah is crying out in between sentences. Let us move on. Verses 10 to 13. We now get to a second attack on Nehemiah. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together. That sounds familiar. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said... Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so... They could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Okay. So, a little bit of background. Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not a Levite. 
So going into the temple was a transgression of God's law. There, there were some specific asylum or sanctuary sorts of things in place uh, to, to go, you know, and, and you'll, you'll read of, you know, going and clinging to the horns of the altar uh, when, when uh, uh, you are being pursued by, by someone who wants to take your life. Um, but, but there is no credible threat here, uh, and, it's, and that doesn't apply to sort of being in battle or, or in, engaged with an enemy outside of God's people. All of those things were about um, if you had taken someone's life, uh, say a manslaughter situation, and, and uh, a relative of his was ready to seek revenge, you could go to the altar and cling there for sanctuary or asylum until such time that the matter could be resolved in another way. This is not that situation. So, simply put, um, our friend Shemaiah is, is calling Nehemiah to sin. In, in, and, and you know what would happen immediately after. He would be called out in front of the people. How can you follow this man? This governor of yours not only is a coward, right? He's hiding inside the temple, the door's locked, while he's leaving all of you out here exposed. He, he is just gratuitously sinful. He doesn't, he doesn't even care about uh, God's temple and God's laws themselves that he would go and, and hide in this way. Um, so that is, uh, is point number two or attack, attack, attempt number two against Nehemiah. And we get then in verse 14, Nehemiah's second imprecatory prayer. Uh, we talked about his first one last week. So here is Nehemiah praying again in verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Um, so Nehemiah is simply saying, God, be, be just. Uh, let, let those who um, oppose you, oppose your people, let, let what is rightly uh, theirs come to them as they continue to live an unrepentant life. Um, and we also get more light shed upon just the extent of the opposition. That it's, I mean, if we, if we started naming everyone, uh, we're up to about 10 or 12 now, and then all the rest of the enemies listed in verse 1, and now all the rest of the prophets here in verse 14. Okay. And now in the midst of a chapter about the opposition uh, to the work on the walls, we have what is almost an aside in verse 15. So the wall was finished. I love that. It's the same thing that he did uh, back in, ver in chapter 4. Um, ch verses 1 through 5 are about opposition to the work in chapter 4. And then verse 5 is... So we built the wall, and we built it to half its height. Um, uh, Nehemiah, it's, it's almost, not completely, but almost as if the wall itself is a secondary thing 
that it's, or, or that it's just, well, this is just going to happen. This is, God's just going to do his work. And it's, it's not that huge of a, of a battle as, as it all seems. Um, so verse 15 again. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. That's pretty good. Two miles of stone wall in, uh, yeah, short of two months. And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And isn't it amazing that even, even God's enemies can see God's hand at work. They, 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 can't, they can't deny what is happening here. But it raises a great question. We are, we are smack dab in the middle of chapter 6 of a 13-chapter book, and the wall is done. So what is Nehemiah about anyway? If, 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 you, if you just sort of ask 100 people, what's the book of Nehemiah about? I, I would venture that the, the first answer, hands down, it's about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It sure is. I mean, that's, that's where it's recorded. But there's a bunch more here. We won't answer everything today, uh, well, because we have seven more chapters left. But uh, there are a number of other things. We've talked about some of them. God's providence in everyday life and events, um, equipping uh, people, putting people providentially uh, sort of in the intersection of his plan, um, um, the idea of depending and trusting and acting at the same time. We've talked about this more last week, but so for example, that um, Nehemiah spent four months praying before he asked the king for permission to go, but, but when the king asked how long will you be, be away? What will you need? Nehemiah was ready with answers. He, he wasn't, well, huh, I, I, I don't know. It's a long way. It's a big wall. I don't know. He, he, he was ready. He said, well, I'm going to need letters of passage. I'm going to need a letter to the guy who's in charge of the forest so I can get plenty of, of lumber. I'm going to need this and that. And, and he, is, he is ready with answers. So he is not merely, again, I apologize for that word, merely praying he is praying and he's planning. Um, when they were arming themselves up in chapter 4 um, against the opposition, they were trusting God but ready to fight. Right? So the big theme that we will see. Worship, big theme. And we haven't seen a ton of it corporately yet. We will next week. Well, we will next time. We won't be here in Nehemiah next week. Um, and, of course, God's faithfulness to his people and to his plans. And, and the wall is a part of that, but there's more. So come back. We'll see more. Keep reading. Read all of Nehemiah. You have two weeks to read all of Nehemiah again before we're together. Until then, we go uh, further in this chapter, verses 17 to 19, where we have a third attempt, uh, attack, on Nehemiah. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, 
and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. All right. So, um, this is sort of a third attack. And we learn a ton about uh, Tobiah. Not, not everything that we'd like to know, but turns out that Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, is a fairly influential man in Jerusalem. People who were bound by oath to him, uh, part of this by marriage. Um, and uh, so one of the things we should, we should sort of make a mental note right away is um, the reforms that we uh, learned about from Ezra chapter 10 way back last winter, those have faded away. Else, else we wouldn't have these, these mixed marriages. Um, if, if you're unsure of all that, I'll just send you back to the left to Ezra. Read that. There are three weeks of, of those uh, lessons from last winter as well. He is uh, closely connected to a priest. Um, and turns out that Nehemiah has spies in amongst the Jewish people allies of Tobiah. So now, now it all starts to become a little more uh, clear uh, that, that there are enemies without and there are enemies within as well. Uh, and uh, Tobiah's <clears throat> goal is to win the crowd. Tobiah's goal is to win the crowd. Hey, Tobiah's a great guy. He's done a lot of things for the for the community and, and, and uh, cut him some slack. All right, Nehemiah, why do you have to be so harsh? Why do you have to be so mean? Just give, give Tobiah a chance. He's a good guy, right? But his, his real motives become clear again at the end of, of verse 19, that when Tobiah was directly communicating with Nehemiah, he was seeking to bring fear to Nehemiah's heart, not to, not to just win the crowd and be a, an advocate for the city of Jerusalem. All right, so that is our chapter 6, and uh, now I want to just pause and, and uh, do what I'd hoped to do after, at the end of two weeks ago, and I tried to do again at the end of last week, and that is to talk about what, what do we do in the face of opposition? What do, we, what do we learn about being in the face of opposition? Um, so, go with me, if you would, to John 16, 33. God has a number of promises in His Bible, and one of those is that we are promised trouble. We are promised tribulation. John 16, 33 <clears throat> this is upper room. This is shortly after Jesus has told his disciples that I'm about to leave. And in fact, you'll all scatter to your homes. Things won't look like they've looked uh, in the recent past. 
and uh, verse 33 of John 16, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right, so, so I'll call it step one. Yeah, I don't know if there's an order to this, but it's a good step. Right, as we're promised tribulation, we we are reminded that we worship one who has overcome the world. Right, and we are called to take heart because of that. Not not because we're good, level-headed people. Not because we're deep and rich in resources to manage. Um, our tribulations, not, not because even that we have one another, though, though we're called to be uh, together and, and living in such a way that we support one another and that we love one another deeply, we are called to take heart because Jesus has overcome the world, right? Regardless of what we see around us, the victory is won already. So that is a, uh, an initial uh, step second, Corinthians four. We're just going to keep going to the right here for a while. Second Corinthians four. Verses sixteen through eighteen. <clears throat> Starts out in the very same way. Though, though in an indicative manner, so we do not lose heart, Paul says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient the things that are unseen, eternal. And so part of taking heart is having right vision. What is, what is it that you have your eyes set upon? Um, and, and Paul calls us to, to have our eyes set upon the things that are unseen and makes this really astounding comparison, right? A light momentary affliction versus, right? That's on one side of the balance, and an eternal weight of glory, right? It just, just throws that light momentary affliction away. Still, it's still true, right? We have, we, have, we have affliction. Compared with this eternal weight of glory, it is light, it is momentary. And so part of uh, taking heart is also understanding that. We keep going to the right. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul is, is, uh, has just mentioned enemies of the cross, whose God is their belly, and, and, right, and, and now he's contrasting uh, the people of God with that. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So another part of taking heart is to know where you really belong, right? This, this world is not our home. That is true. That's true, brothers and sisters. This world is not our home. Right? Our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we're strangers, aliens, sojourners, as it were, here. So take heart. This is not home. Also, don't cling too closely. This is not home. These things that we have around us, wonderful gifts of God, they're very temporary. And uh, so don't, don't hang on too tightly. Yeah. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. This uh, section pulls in more closely to the topic of opposition and being reviled and gives us Jesus' example. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Right? And so here again is part of taking heart. Uh, part of taking heart is understanding that it is not necessarily our job to avenge ourselves, to defend ourselves, uh, to revile back for sure. That is, not, that is not our job. Our job is to trust God with whatever may come. Right? If, if Jesus, who, who, who held all authority in his hand, can trust, entrust himself to the Father who judges justly, who, who are you, who am I, to, to decide that I need to take up that, that uh, sword of vengeance to, to defend myself, to my, my honor, my whatever? Right? Who are you to do that? Right? So this is part of taking heart that we, we worship one who has, has overcome the world. We, we set our sights rightly on those things that are, that are unseen. We know that our citizenship is not here and we entrust ourselves to God. These are core parts of facing opposition for, for the people of God. All right. And there's about six 75 others in the New Testament that you could have gone to, but that's not what this study is about exactly. So let's go on to uh, Nehemiah chapter 7. The walls are built, and it's time to become a city. It, all of a sudden, you have walls built, and you have gates up, and now you're either in the city or you're out of the city. And, and so things matter. You're not just, you know, just walking across the hilltop. Um, and so, uh, so there's some very practical things that are, that are put in place. Verse 1, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and singers, the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani 
and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. So everyday life begins. There are people who are uh, assigned, appointed to rule over the city. Uh, there are guards set up, so there's still opposition. Uh, so guards at the gates the entire time it's open. And there's, now that the wall is up, the residential construction can begin. Um, verse 5, Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, we'll stop right there, before we, before we reread Ezra 2, that's, that's what this is, this, this whole list all the way from, from here, verse 6, through verse 73, um, is, is the same accounting. Nehemiah has now come across this thing from about 100 years ago. The list of folks who came with Jeshua, the priest, Zerubbabel, uh, who was sort of the political leader. Um, this all became, uh, came about because of the proclamation of Cyrus. So the very last verses of Second Chronicles, very first verses of, of Ezra describe that. Um, the returning exiles are described by family lineage, by geography, by their social order, whether they're priests or Levites or ser temple servants, on and on. There's a list of folks who couldn't verify their lineage. There are totals of people and livestock, a list of gifts. Um, and uh, as we close up this and prepare for chapter 8, there is an interesting thing that occurs that I wish I could fully explain to you, but we'll look at it and then uh, we'll dig into it more next week. Again, two weeks, sorry. Um, Look at Nehemiah seven seventy three with me. So the priests, he, he's, he's still recounting, we think. We, we think he's still recounting from this reading from this document that's 100 years old. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Why do I think he's still reading from that document. Uh, go back to Ezra 2. Start in verse 70. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Then chapter 3 of Ezra, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Well, that all sounds like the same story. Um, but if we continue in Ezra, verse 2 of chapter 3, then arose Jeshua with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel. Okay? Now back to Nehemiah. Sorry for the whiplash. 
Nehemiah, we're going to dip into chapter 8. Verse 1, chapter 8, and all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. Well, Ezra was still um, back in Assyria when Ezra 2 and 3 happened. So somewhere, somewhere in the end of Nehemiah 7, and we don't exactly know where, but somewhere the, the author here has, has left the hundred-year-old document and has slid back to the present-day narrative because it's no longer Jeshua and Zerubbabel, it is Ezra. So uh, that hurts my brain just a little bit to, to not know exactly where that happens, but, but it's a, it's a, we have more to say about it in a couple of weeks coming, but, but I just wanted you to, to observe that. And uh, that's where we'll stop for today. I don't see Matt Scheffler here. Does somebody have a microphone ready to make announcements? Read your bulletin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this record of your faithfulness to your people in the midst of opposition, in the midst of attacks. God, you remind us that you have overcome the world through your Son and that we are no longer citizens of this place. We are yours, already blessed in the heavenly places. God, would would those truths impact how we live day to day, how we see the world around us? Would you give us... um, Would you give us eyes that see the unseen, as it were, that our minds are stayed upon you? We praise you, God, and we pray all things in Christ's name. Amen. All right.